Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Emily Eakins joins us with the Cato Institute. Emily, you are one of the important anal- analysts, rather, in the nation on our millennials. I know we don't know the micro detail of the election yet, but did the millennials show up and what did they mean to the results? Well, yes. I mean, evidence suggests um, early on that millennials were more energized to vote, but I think they're more reflective overall of how many uh, Democratic constituents felt going into this election, that they viewed this as a referendum very specifically on President Trump. But is it enough? I mean, Dan Balls just published in the Washington Post talking about that red wall that hit the blue wave. I mean, do the millennials have enough (laughs) oomph to, with the margin, uh, help uh, liberals in two years? I think that it could during the presidential year. But as we know, you know, midterms are a little bit tougher um, because of turnout. However, what we have seen is that it looks like we're still counting votes, but more people have voted or about as many people have voted in this election as in 2016, a presidential election, which is quite astounding. So we still have to wait to see how that shakes out in terms of millennials. But their turnout was higher um, than it, what would be expected in typical midterm elections. Emily, just in terms of the key issues that really attracted voters to vote for a specific party, it was pretty clear for a lot of people in the last 24 hours that immigration meant a lot to those that voted Republican and health care meant a lot to those that voted Democrat. What mattered to the independents? So for independents, obviously both mattered, but perhaps for different reasons. For independents, health care mattered quite a bit, but it had a lot to do with costs and premiums going up. And so it kind of depended on how the candidates frame the issue in their, you know, in their specific yeah. districts. I think on immigration, though, I think a lot of independents feel like the Trump administration yeah. went too far, especially what we saw with the family separations at the border. Would you explain, and this is from the Cato tilt, I understand that, if we have a vector of growing debt, a vector of growing deficit to GDP, when does the growthiness certitude drift away from the Trump administration? Sorry, I couldn't understand. Well, they, the, they believe the in a growth. Mr. Cudlow believes in growth at all costs. And if we grow, it'll fix our deficits or, you know, the deficits yep, won't yep. grow. Cato pushes against that to be polite. When does that dialogue end? Well, just to be clear, um, I'm a pollster at the Cato Institute, so I'm not taking positions one way or another. But I can tell you Please. what the data says. Please. And then um, Republicans really are the only ones that are caring about the budget deficit, as evidenced by what we see, um, what people tell us in the polls. Obviously, Democrats are talking about it at the national elite level, but it's really only rank and file Republicans that seem to care about it. But even they have elevated other concerns above that. Um, and so it, I think that it's only really when Democrats are in office that we hear a lot of Republicans complaining about the budget deficit. Um, and yes, I think that the kind of the reason or the justification they will give is they'll say, well, economic growth will get us out of this. Yeah. And it is, we, we are seeing um, a pretty good economy um, during Trump's tenure. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's enough to get us out of a budget deficit. Okay. Emily, thank you so much. Emily Eakins with us, Cato Institute, where she does polling and thinks about broader issues. 
right now from the shores of the Maumee River, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mark Lauder uh, joins us right now with his service to Mike Pence uh, over the years and with Lauder Communications uh, right now. In Indiana, Mark Lauder, an incumbent Democrat, went down in flames. Does that signal a different Republican Party, a new nuanced Republican Party? I wouldn't view it as much of that. Uh, I think this is really a correction from a very flawed candidate that was nominated in 2012 uh, that uh, really just imploded there in the last yeah. month before the election in 2012, which opened the door for a uh, for a Democrat to take that seat. And I think this was right. Indiana basically showing its traditional deep red state uh, status. Uh, and restoring that right. with a with a Republican uh, senator, and yet Democrats across the contentious, what I'm going to call it for our global audience, the Eastern Midwest, the Great Lakes states, uh, there seem to be a Democrat tinge there. What does that signal moving forward to 2020? Well, it, it's it's always going to be a challenge, and while there were a lot of great victories for Republicans on uh, on Tuesday. Uh, the governor's races in uh, in in Wisconsin. Uh, the the one in Michigan was really never really close. Fair, uh, fair. So uh, that was uh, you know that was something obviously we would hope for. But uh, uh, you know we also got a very good strong Republican governor uh, elected in uh, Ohio, which was a very close and and uh, and, and close okay. race. So there Look, were a number of positives I'm, there. I'm with the Ball State guy. Let me rip up the script here. What did you learn from the state of Ohio? Florida and Ohio really matter. What did Mark Lauder take away from Ohio? Uh, first and foremost, the candidates matter. Um, so we had very strong candidates uh, in both Florida and Ohio in the governor's races, in the Senate race, obviously with Governor Scott. Uh, defeating Senator Brown in Ohio was never really a, a, a possibility. It would have taken a red wave to uh, to capture to capture that seat. So I'm not sure we learned a lot more. We had you know there were some very good house pick or households yeah. in uh, in Ohio. So it, it's all going to come down to a lot of times local issues. And uh, these these elections, especially at the House of Representatives level, are still hyper local. And so you need to have great candidates who are raising money, knocking on doors, doing those basic things. And in this case, we saw that many Democrats outraised Republicans at the House district level, while Republicans on a state level and on the national level uh, completely swamped Democrat fundraising organization. But that's got to translate. It's got to translate down to those, dis- those House districts. Mark, let's talk about 2020. Have you identified what a Republican president is running against, the ideas that is coming out of this Democratic Party that the Republican president, Donald Trump, will be running against in 2020. I've struggled to get a coherent sort of idea of of what the Democratic Party stands for right now and through the campaigning of the last few months. Have you got a good idea? Uh, I don't think so, other than than resistance, uh, which is really the only message they have put forward is uh, is resistance. It will be interesting to see, and this is and, and this is a very important moment because campaigning is one thing, governing is something completely else. And do the Democrats, with their new majority in the House of Representatives, know how to govern? Which means you're going to have to produce budgets. You're going to have to produce the basic legislation and come into an agreement with an expanded majority in the United States Senate and a, and a Republican in the White House, will they be able to, yeah. to do those things? If they won't, 
this could be quickly yeah. reversed in two years in a presidential election year because their majority is not that great. This has been great. Thank you so much. Mark Lauder with us uh, from Lauder Communications has worked for Republicans in Indiana over the years. Now joining us, we've heard from uh, discourse with Republicans, someone certainly affiliated with the Democrat Par- Democratic Party. Lawrence Summers joins us, the former Secretary of Treasury and also, of course, the former president of Harvard University. Larry Summers, I guess we're all going to go back to our original economics as we dash through gridlock. I think of your uncle, Paul Samuelson, the Nobel laureate, and his classic text of 1948. What does Lawrence Summers think of gridlock? What actually gets done in Washington? Look, we just saw a frustration election. People can't agree on it, on everything, but there's some things they can agree on. We need to focus on combating the things that are causing people to be so frustrated. That starts with raising the minimum wage, lower after adjusting for inflation, that it's been in a very long time. That means putting back the protections in Obamacare so you can get health insurance when you need it, which is when uh, you're sick. That means confronting the kind of excesses of business power, frankly, that we see. Why should it cost three times as much to get an inhaler for your kid in the United States as it does in uh, Canada? Well, okay, let, let, Larry, Larry, this is critical. These, then. Are, Let's these, go. Are, these are issues everybody right. should uh, be able okay. to agree on. Char- and what we need to do is stop having wars and move forward. Okay, on. but Larry, this goes right to the point. Charles Myers mentioned this earlier this morning with Signum, which is one of the two things we can do in this gridlock is infrastructure and also pharmaceutical pricing. Do you actually believe in the gridlock that we can get a reduction in drug prices, as you allude to the inhalers? Look, I, I'm not sure what what Congress will succeed in passing. I'm sure what the country needs to do, and I'm sure what the vast majority of its uh, citizens uh, would uh, support, and I'm sure what responsible officials would uh, find constructive ways to uh, to compromise on. Prognosticate, prognosticating Washington uh, politics, I'll leave to somebody else. The economy's hard enough. Larry, do you really think that the Democratic Party can become the party of fiscal responsibility? I think the priority, look, we've, in the long run, there are issues around the budget deficit that we've got to confront. But if we're going to move our economy forward, if we're going to move our country forward, if we're going to come together uh, again, fiscal responsibility for the long run is not the priority right now. Serving the interests of a frustrated, angry electorate that, whose interests have not been uh, followed for the last two years is what uh, the priority has, uh, has, got, has got to be. When I hear people come on these financial shows and talk about how their agenda is to have the Fed raise interest rates faster because they think somehow too many people are being employed, um, and to cut and to do what they think is courageous, which is to cut the social security benefits of people earning forty thousand dollars a year, and they don't talk about the price of inhalers. They don't talk about what it's like to live on a seven dollar and thirty five cent uh, minimum wage. Yeah. They don't talk about the fact that every corporation can contribute as much money as it wants, but no employer, but, but 
thousands of employers won't give their workers the day off uh, to go and vote, and states across the country go out of their way to make it as hard as possible for people in minority groups to register, and they're not complaining uh, about that. I I have to say that it's hard to focus on their abstract long-run financial uh, concerns when they are oblivious to the concrete uh, concerns that are hurting the lives of uh, tens of millions of people who work for their companies. So, Larry, a couple of points you've made there, and I want to pick up on the point on the Federal Reserve. To some degree, do you agree with the President of the United States, then, that the Federal Reserve needs to stop hiking interest rates? I think the Fed needs to be careful and... uh, Needs to be careful and prudent as uh, the day as the data comes in, and very much aware that monetary mm-hmm. policy operates with a lag, and so there's a risk that you tighten and you tighten, you don't yeah. remember the lag, and you uh, tip the economy into mm-hmm. recession. I think the I think that the kind of uh, Fed bashing in which the president is engaged is uh, really unfitting of his yeah. office and is likely to be counterproductive because it means that if the Fed were to decide it wanted to slow down on right. tightening, they'd have to well, reckon with the possibility that they look like they've been bullied. We may see that at 1130 today with a press conference. Lawrence Summers of, of Harvard, and of course, the former Secretary of Treasury of the United States with us this morning. Larry, you are identified with secular stagnation. We got X number of quarters of growth Every single guest John Farrow and I speak with believes we will see a vector south in GDP, in economic growth. Are we going to enjoy summer's secular stagnation here with a lesser growth and a high inflation off of those deficits? I think growth is likely to slow. Uh, I, I'm not worried about inflation reaching uh, dangerous levels. Inflation's been below the 2% target for a decade now. It may creep a little bit above the 2% inflation target. I don't think that's a serious problem. I think the serious problems are around the things I've been uh, talking about, uh, the lives of citizens who are so obviously frustrated Mm -hmm. uh, with what's happening in our country and have reason uh, to be frustrated. And I think we've got to focus on maintaining the momentum of uh, growth. And if we can address some of the issues I've uh, talked about, like – the uh, minimum wage, like making necessary investments in our country's uh, infrastructure, which enable us uh, to compete, we can uh, raise the country's long-run growth rate. But I don't think sugar-high approaches based on uh, corporate tax cuts to companies that have plenty of cash is going to do a lot to push the economy forward. Secretary Summers, thank you so much. Lawrence Summers. Uh, with Great us to today, Larry of course, with us. from Harvard University. Joining us now, we, we, we've been really trying to get guests with a different twist, and particularly operational guests of how you get elected. We've done that on the red side and the blue side now. Robbie Mook joins us. Of course, you've seen him on CNN. But far more Robbie Mook working with Secretary Clinton in her 2016 campaign. What was the campaign tactical execution, Robbie, that you saw last night? What paid off? That's a great question, and and thanks for having me. Um, 
I, I think we'll, I, I think Democrats saw success in unexpected places, yeah. know, South Carolina, Oklahoma. And the, what the candidates did there was run local races. Uh, they spoke to their constituents as someone from the community. They didn't allow interest groups in D.C. to push them or, or, or shove them in some cases into particular policy positions. And they ran uh, advertising on kitchen table issues like health care and job creation uh, and education. Um, I, I think there were there were there were kind of two different campaigns going on. One was on uh, cable television, and the other was right. in, in these districts, and it, and it was much more kitchen table. One of the management things you have with the egos you have to deal with is once they get elected, you've got to calm them down and hold their hand, or maybe they jettison you out the door. How do the Democrats move forward? Do you counsel grace, or should they move forward in the House with a certain fire? That's a great question. Democrats need to focus on delivering results for the people who elected them. And if you look at the kind of candidates we elected, people out of law enforcement, out of uh, the military, um, they're they're pragmatic, practical people. And so yeah. I think there's actually going to be, in a really good way, internal right. pressure in the caucus to get things done. Okay, let me cut to the chase. That's very nice of you to say. What is Maxine Waters going to do as chairman of the House Financial Services Committee? I mean, are we in for endless committees in the back and forth? You know, it's almost like Brexit, just the back and forth every day of the president and his infirmities. Or are we actually going to get government done that advances your Democratic Party? Well, I think Democrats want to get things done. There's, uh, if you if you listen to uh, Nancy Pelosi last night, um, she didn't talk about investigations. She talked about you know improving health care, uh, an infrastructure bill, which I, I think there's there's broad based support for uh, across the country. Um, and so I, I think there's all the chance in the world that that stuff can happen. The, the real question is: Is the president going to be an honest broker? And and for example, on immigration, you know, he cut a deal with Democrats last year and then walked away from them at the last minute. He's just not a reliable, trustworthy broker. That's that's been his reputation all of his life. And so I think a lot of this falls on him to decide if he's going to if he's going to be an honest negotiator and follow through on his promises and, frankly, put political capital behind something other than himself. I mean, he just hasn't shown the ability to to expend uh, political capital to move something through. He just wants to win the news cycle every day. Robbie, let's ask a question that falls on the Democratic Party. I won't ask you who President Donald Trump will run against in 2020. That would be ridiculous. I want to ask you what President Donald Trump is going to be running against in 2020. What is the idea that the Democratic Party wants to communicate to the electorate that President Donald Trump will be running against? Yeah, it is incumbent on our nominee to prove two things. First of all, that Donald Trump has not been honest, that he gave people a raw deal. He said he'd do one thing and he's done another, and he's hurt everyday people in their lives. Um, their wages haven't gone up. The tax code got rigged against them. Uh, uh, you know, he was it was really good for himself, but not good for them. And then secondly, we need to prove the case that we can do a better job. We can create more jobs uh, through, you know, through something like infrastructure. We can we can improve Obamacare so that health care uh, markets stabilize and it's more affordable for families. Those are the things we have to prove. And I think the president is going to do everything in his power to try to make the debate in our primary yeah. about identity politics and a whole bunch of other issues. But Robbie, we can't fall for on that. The, on the economy, I find it very difficult to see how the Democrats are going to come up with an idea that really goes against what he's done. Wage growth is up. GDP is up. Confidence levels, just look at the soft data from the business community, sky high. 
What is the argument that comes from the Democratic w- Party? <laughs> Wages are distinctly not up. People are taking home less pay every single year that goes by. Wages are up Mass 3% in the latest payrolls report. Right, but that's not growing. Uh, fa- it's, it's not growing at the same pace uh, as inflation. And um, it's above inflation. The president, the, the president. Right. For this year. But if you look at the past 30 years, it has not been growing fast enough. And the president passed a tax bill that gave away uh, billions of dollars um, to corporations and to the richest individuals. We have not seen that uh, invested back into companies that's being used for uh, buybacks. And our children are being saddled with mountains of debt. So I think there's a lot at stake here. I think there's a lot we do very differently. We got each back on Robbie Mook. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, 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 with his perspective on the mechanics, working with Terry McAuliffe a few years ago on the governor at race in Virginia, and of course, with Secretary Clinton uh, two years ago. It is good within all of our political views today, our economics, finance, investment, David Wilson's good stock report, to talk to somebody that actually lived 1994. He is forever the senator from Mississippi. Trent Lott joins us uh, this morning. Uh, Senator Lott, wonderful to have you with us. And within that is 1994, where one side of the House has to get used to the other side of the House as well. How will senators in the uh, how will Republicans in the Senate adapt and adjust to a Democrat House? Well, first, Tom and Tim, it's good to be with you again. And uh, this is quite an interesting morning. I was interested in the business report. But, you know, there have been uh, two similar situations that I lived through in the 80s when Reagan was president. He always had a Democratic House and only part of the time a Republican Senate. And yet working with Tip O'Neill, working across the aisle with people like Bob Michael and Bob Dole over in the Senate, they got things done. And in the 90s, uh, when Clinton was president, uh, we had both the House and the Senate. Uh, Newt Gingrich and I were leading the two bodies, and uh, we worked together. Clinton talked to us. We we did uh, welfare reform. We balanced the budget. We passed uh, safe drinking water. We passed telecommunication reform. A lot of things can be done in a divided government, but it takes communication. It takes uh, chemistry. It takes a vision, but most of all, it takes leadership. Does your Republican president have the communication and chemistry to do that, beginning with the press conference at 1130 this morning? Well, uh, he's going to have to adjust to the circumstances that he faces. Uh, he does have, thank goodness, uh, the Republican Senate, but he's going to have to deal with Nancy Pelosi and a Democratic House. Uh, you know, and uh, try to figure out how we can get things done. There's some things the Senate can do on their own, but... If he would reach out to uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate and Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and say, can we get together on infrastructure? This is something I think he cares about. Uh, Does anybody deny that in America we need to invest more in lanes, planes, trains, ports, harbor, water, and sewer? Well, absolutely not. It's not partisan. Uh, So they need to think a little bit about, can we get some things done for our country in the lame duck session and next year? Now, after that, 2020, who knows? All bets are off. Pim, Trent Lott sounds like he was running for office there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
you never I know. thought about it, but I, I, I couldn't uh, afford to give up my yeah. uh, livelihood, and I didn't want a divorce after 54 years of the same lady. Well, that would so, be good. Uh, Sen- I'm retired. Senator, let me— thing. Well, you, well, you got to know when to retire, by the way. Some of our colleagues need to think about that. Let me bring in Pim Fox. Pim? Well, let's follow up on that. What? Who are the key relationship builders in the Senate? And you just mentioned retirement. Should there be an age limit? For senators? Oh, no. oh, no, no, no. You know, look, uh, the American people uh, can end a term and, and leadership. Well, you know, in the Senate, for instance, they do have term limits on everybody, but the, the Republican leader, uh, the whip, uh, a really good man, Cornyn from Texas, is having to step aside his whip after six years. And the other leaders, I presume, will uh, will move up. Uh, Thune and Barrasso and Roy Blunt. He's a very interesting uh, personality. He served in the House. He was a whip in the House. Now he's in leadership in the Senate. So if uh, some of those folks will uh, try to think about how do we reach across the aisle and, and see if there's something we maybe can do. For instance, uh, the Congress, Democrat House and Republican Senate, they're going to have to deal with the trade issue. You know, uh, the uh, USMCA uh, uh, follow-up to NAFTA has to come to Congress. Are they going to be able to get that done? And by the way, if they don't, you know, what is the situation with regard to trade in Canada and Mexico, our two most important trading partners? What are the relationships that you believe currently exist or that have been built over time that still exist in the Senate between Democrats and Republicans? I have to tell you, I don't see much. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing you have to work on every day. I had a u- unique personality to work with in Tom Daschle from South Dakota. He was a Democratic leader when I was a Republican leader. We had a good chemistry. We talked all the time, and we were able to get a lot of things done, uh, even though we, you know, had uh, the president, yeah. uh, you know, was Clinton. But, it, uh, you know, they're just going to have to try to think about, okay, what do we do? The fact is we do have a Republican Senate that gains seats, and we do have a Democrat House. Mm. It's a fact. Now, how are you going to uh, deal with that? The Part of the bridge that could be built, well, first of all, I think they should stay in Washington and work more. Uh, this deal where they come into town Monday night or Tuesday morning and they want to leave Thursday, you, you can't govern like that. Uh, you know, the American people work five days a week. Oh, really? And, yeah, the <laughs> uh, last time I checked. And this idea they could sleep in our offices, that ought to be illegal in my opinion. But, uh, you know, they're going to have to spend well. some more time here. Uh, and yeah. uh, they're going to have to find a way. You know, one of the issues, one of the things that caused me to decide to leave Congress when I did was the how embarrassed I was about the inability of Congress to do immigration reform. Yeah. Uh, it needs to be done, both for those that are here uh, and for those that yeah. we might want to come that are legal uh, and to control um, the flow of illegal immigrants into this country. Uh, that hasn't mm. been dealt with since 1986, effectively. Uh, well, everybody knows it's an issue. We need to find a way to come together. Senator, please don't be a stranger. Uh, <laughs> Senator Lott of uh, Mississippi with his work with John Bro, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, afterwards, My partner. Your yeah. partner as well. Senator, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Stephen Moore joins us now, writing with uh, Dr. Laffler, Trumponomics, which got wide play, particularly in Republican areas. To the gentleman from New Trier in Winnetka, Illinois, Stephen Moore, the deficit grows. At what point does a deficit get in the way of Trumponomics? 
Well, good morning. Thank you for the nice introduction. And uh, that's the first time in a, in a while people have mentioned my high school, but <laughs> I did go to New Church High School uh, outside of Chicago. And uh, look, I think uh, you're right. We've got a we've got a booming economy right now. You know, we had these big elections last night, and I think that the uh, people say, well, the economy wasn't really on the ballot. Well, it sure was. And I think <laughs> if it hadn't been for this booming economy, Republicans would have right. taken a huge bloodbath. I think you know, it's it, the economy is what saved uh, so many. Of these Senate seats for the Republicans and and, uh, some of the governorships. So, look, I'm very bullish on the U.S. economy. I actually think that this outcome for investors, because this is Bloomberg and all these investors, so I just would say this, that I think that the outcome last night where the Democrats took the House, Republicans took the Senate, is absolutely the best possible outcome for financial markets. That's actually a good outcome for Donald Trump. I think it gives him two years to run against Nancy Pelosi and the, and the, and the right. Democrats. So, you know, I think, you know, you saw one of the Dow futures were up to something like 200 well, points this morning. I think this is a good outcome. Okay, Stephen, you sound like Lawrence Kudlow at the Economic Club in New York. I asked a question. You didn't answer it. Tell me about the dynamics of debt and deficit given this economic growth. Everybody knows the vector of deficit to GDP. When does it turn around? Yeah, so that's a great question. In fact, in the book, in the book, we talk a lot about that. You know, we from our first meeting with Donald Trump, uh, you know, two, some two and a half years ago, we basically told him, uh, "Look, Donald," and that we, we call him Donald. Then we call him Mr. President. Now, we said, "You're never going to make any progress in reducing this massive tidal wave of debt that is coming because of the aging of the baby boomers, unless we get the economic growth rate up." You know, under Obama, the average growth rate, you know, was something like 1.95 percent per year, which was, you. Know, know, just not high enough, not nearly high enough. We need to double that growth rate. And so we always said, look, get the economy moving, get people in the workforce, get people off of welfare and, and into jobs and, and bring factories back to the United States, bring corporate profits and business profits up, and, and you'll get a, a surge of of revenues, and so, you know, the, Trump has done that. We've gotten the uh, the growth rate up to you know close to four percent now over the okay, last six months. Okay, but Tim, I just want Stephen. I, I know, but Stephen, you I haven't know, answered my, my question. I no, I'm, I'm answering it. So the the solution to the debt is economic growth. We've got to get the. And if we keep up this economic growth rate, just as in the late 1990s under Bill Clinton, when we actually ran budget surpluses at the end of his presidency, if we get the if we keep this high rate of growth up, the, the debt as a share of G- GDP will continue to fall. Stephen Moore, is there any evidence, practical evidence, to suggest that tax cuts are able to generate enough growth to replace the revenue that is lost from those tax cuts? And if well, so, can you me, point me? Hang on, hang yeah. on. Because I've looked at a variety of economic studies, and at the most, they say that maybe a third of the money of the revenue that is lost from tax cuts is made up under the best of circumstances from economic growth. Just a third. Yep. So, uh, look, um, our objective with the tax cut was to grow the economy and create jobs. That was the number one issue for the American people in 2000. Uh, you know, 14, 15, 16, every year, what were Americans concerned about? The economy and jobs. And, and we put that first. And, and we've done that. We've created, you know, the best labor market ever for American workers, at least in 50 years. And we've got a, a booming economy with 3.5% to 4% growth. Now, 
Is the deficit going up? Yes. Why is the deficit going up? Because spending uh, is out of control. Spending is out of control. And I'm not going to defend the Republicans on the spending. You know, they, they, they have done nothing. And neither party wants to control spending. But last year, even with the tax cut, even with the tax cut, in 2018, fiscal 2018, which ended in October, we had more federal revenues into the Treasury than any time in American history. It's not a revenue problem. It's a spending problem. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Stephen Moore, thank you so much. Not enough time today. We'll have you back on uh, soon. His important book with Art Laffler, Stephen Moore, Arthur B. Laffler, Trumponomics, of course, with a theory and uh, actual policy that we've seen from the president. And again, we may get clarity on it. to squeeze in some time here with Frank Keating of Oklahoma. Uh, Governor Keating, if I can jump to your tangible expertise in law enforcement, uh, including being an FBI agent, if the president advances forward the rhetoric and discourse on immigration, how will that be played out with our military at the border? Is, is, a, is a police guy, do you want the army at the border? Well, Thomas, you well know uh, the Posse Comitatus Act uh, prohibits the military involving itself in law enforcement activities and surely grabbing people and pushing them back, committing a misdemeanor, illegal entry into the United States, is a law enforcement act. The Immigration Service at one time, late Reagan, reported to me, as did the Border Patrol. And um, in a situation like this, the only thing you can do is have Mexico help you to keep people from coming across and putting barriers that are significant along the bar- the border so people can't crawl over it. In effect, a wall by some other name. So I'm, I'm not really happy about what's going on. I think we have to protect our borders. If you let these people in, you're going to have 10 times that m- number, particularly with Obrador as the new president of Mexico. You don't know. Uh, he's very, very left-wing. His rhetoric so far has been reasonably positive, but you just don't know. So you certainly don't want everybody in Central, South America, and Mexico coming across the border. That's just not sustainable. Governor Keating, during your second term, one of the major accomplishments was your increase in spending on education. This was for common education, vocational technical higher education there was throughout the state you also introduced charter schools to oklahoma for the first time based on what you know about the disposition of the way money is spent right now for example arizona voted down school vouchers during the uh midterms what is the likelihood that we're going to get a coherent education policy well the good news tim is that Uh, federalism works, and in the education arena and across the board, you have to work together, Democrats and Republicans. And in my case, I was the first Republican governor since the 60s, overwhelmingly Democrat House and Senate. But I told them, okay, I'm for vouchers, but we'll do public school vouchers. And I'm for choice, public school choice. And we ought to have charter schools. Well, They went along with that, and the Epic Charter School, for example, in Oklahoma City has 9,000 students, and they have very high ACT scores, 
whereas many public schools throughout the state burdened by huge levels of bureaucracy, that's across the country. The money doesn't go to the classroom to get people like the three of us to teach. It goes to bureaucrats whose average salary is in six figures. And I think that's crazy for any state to over-invest in bureaucracy and under-invest in the classroom. Governor, one final question. It's 175 miles from Tulsa to Wichita. I feel like I'm writing a song for the late Glenn Campbell. You're moving from Tulsa to Wichita, and you're moving to a state with a Democrat governor. Uh, The Brownback experiment north of Oklahoma and Kansas, how did that work out? Well, Alexander Brownback is a very bright guy, but as a former senator, I can't figure this out. He was not effective with the legislature, didn't work with them, Republican or Democrat. You have to do that. And if the Democrats say, no, it's hell no, then you say, okay, then where can we go? I mean, if you want to be a dictator, and I can say this as a Catholic, if you want to be a solo person in charge, then run for pope. But if you're a legislator— By definition, you're to compromise. And I don't think Sam Brownback compromised, and I think the public decided they want to have administer the whole system of diuretic. Frank Keating, thank you so much, and uh, I hope to see you your next travels to New York to advance forward the next volume, the next magical children. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.